Well, we are continuing in our exploration of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as we come to the end of chapter 5, and with only 15 verses remaining in Paul's letter, we are well into the turn that Paul made in chapter 4 from the indicative to the imperative, from making observations about the Ephesians to making demands upon them. And he uses the latter half of his book to instruct the Christians in Ephesus about how they are to conduct themselves in a world that profoundly misunderstands the faith of Christians. A faith that Paul recognizes is difficult even for Christians to consistently comprehend. That's why he's always praying for these Christian brothers and sisters, interrupting the flow of his letter with with prayers. Because apart from a a daily pursuit of Jesus in both knowledge and practice, our faith fades like a neglected second language, language, and we revert to the influences of the spiritual forces in this world that are opposed to Jesus and wage their war against him by corrupting the good world that was created through him. But Jesus fights back against these forces. He's not abandoned humanity or the good world created through him. Quite the contrary. Jesus guarantees victory to those who love him through his own victory over death. The first one to rise to incorruptibility, he promises restoration and renewal, recovery and the recreation of all things in himself. And this is both a future promise and a present work. He does not wait until the end to start, but begins in the middle of history. He does not wait to heal the wound, but he begins immediately. Through the church, the risen Jesus Christ is pressing back against the deceptions and delusions and dysfunctions and defilements of this world. He is preserving the world from further decay through the faithfulness of Christians. And more than that, he's teaching us what makes for a good life. One that is both pleasing to him and satisfying for us. He is reacquainting humanity with his design for them which Christians discover as we live according to his word, regardless of how foreign and counterintuitive it feels to us. Because the kingdom of God is foreign to this world. It is counterintuitive. It's something we discover when in faith we act in ways that contradict our instincts. And this is expressed beautifully in the prayer that the Book of Common Prayer assigns to be prayed on Fridays, the day of the week Jesus was crucified and died. This prayer goes like this. Almighty God, whose most dear son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Pain is the prerequisite for joy. Crucifixion, the precursor for glory. Death is the way to life and peace. This is nonsense to the world. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's too often nonsense to us as well. Even though this is the rule by which Jesus calls us to order our lives and the spirit is slowly moving us towards, slowly but surely. And these sorts of nonsensical statements form the ethic of God's kingdom in our midst and they threaten the power structures and the priority structures that exist within the world. 
The gospel takes the structures of, of power and priority that the world has established in it, and the gospel turns them on their head. Up is down, and down is the way up in the, new, in the kingdom of God. God does not assign value as we do. And to prove that, Jesus spent the vast majority of his time talking and eating with inconsequential people. He was attracted to the outcasts of this world, the people easily ignored. And his interactions with the powerful and influential people of his day, both secular and religious, were antagonistic. They didn't like each other. Jesus was a threat because the gospel he preaches, the cross itself, undermines the priority structures of our world. And it terrifies those who have risen to the top and know how precarious their positions are up there where the wind blows the strongest. What is feared is the loss of all things. Chaos is expected. And yet the gospel, what the gospel introduces is not chaos, but a community of mutual love. The gospel undermines all of the ways in which societies prioritize some people over others. And instead, it introduces an entirely new paradigm into the world, a paradigm modeled after none other than the triune God. In his book, Reason for God, Tim Keller writes that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are engaged in an eternal divine dance. And he writes this, the Trinity means that God is in essence relational. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. And when we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. And that creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love and delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. This creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. And this dynamic dance of joy and love is the defining image of the Christian community as well, the body and kingdom of Jesus in the world. Power and position in this world are relevant only to the extent that they can be leveraged to benefit the other. Otherwise, power and position are, are to be regarded with the same indifference that Paul showed to the people who were considered quote-unquote influential in Galatians 2.6, what they were makes no difference to me, he writes. God shows no partiality. Within the kingdom of God, there's a, there's a race to the bottom. In order to elevate and strengthen the faith of those who, uh, whom the world considers inconsequential, but God considers priceless, worth even the life of his own son. And this, this gospel dynamic creates drastically different goals in the lives of Christians than the ones the world prescribes to us. The gospel measures success not by how much a person accumulates, but by how much they're willing to give away. Not by how high they rise, but how low they're willing to go. The life of the church, just like the life of the Trinity, is to be characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. And in Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 9, Paul takes this gospel dynamic and he applies it to the most fundamental building block of society, 
the family. Very few things shape a person's life more significantly than their family. Ask any of the counselors here amongst us. In fact, very few things shape a society more significantly than the health of the families that make up a society. Therefore, the work of realizing this gospel dynamic within the larger Christian community begins in the home with the dynamics between husbands and wives and parents and children. And this is where Paul sets his sights. But Paul wasn't alone in his interest in the family. Paul wasn't doing anything novel here. Instructions for households were commonplace in the Greco-Roman, even the ancient worlds. They were called household codes. Aristotle, for example, created a work entitled Politics, in which he sets out to explain the role that the state can play in creating virtue in its citizens. But he acknowledges early on in the third part of his first book that he can't address the state without first addressing the role of the family. He writes, seeing then that the state is made up of households, but before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. And he then lays out guidelines for how the family should function in order to create the kind of virtuous society he envisioned. And Paul is doing the exact same thing. He's laying out guidelines for how families should function in order to encourage a kingdom ethic in the church. The household code is not new to Paul. What is significant for us, though, are the ways in which Paul's household code in Ephesians differs from the many other Greco-Roman household codes that were in existence while he was writing his letter. I mean, even a cursory reading of Paul's household code reveals a significant difference. Read through 521 through 69, and you'll hear Paul addressing not just husbands, but wives, not just masters, but slaves, not just parents, but children. And this does not strike us as significant. And if it does, it's only because we're offended that Paul would be so bold as to tell women how to live, right? But one scholar points out that secular household tables directly address only the duties of the party in authority and not the subordinate wife, children, or slaves. And it's actually quite remarkable then that Paul should address women at all. By mere virtue of who he chooses to address, Paul is undermining already the systems of authority and power that operated in the households of his day. He elevates the members of the household who were typically ignored and tells them that they too are participants in the kingdom of God. Women, children, and slaves are co-workers in God's kingdom. And in this cursory reading of Paul's household code, it also becomes evident that he spends the majority of his time 13 verses discussing the relationship between husbands and wives. And in contrast, he gives four verses to the relationship between parents and children and five verses to the relationship between slaves and masters. And given these proportions, we will likewise focus primarily on the directives Paul gives to husbands and wives. But before we go there, I do think it's necessary to say here that Paul is by no means supporting the institute, institution of slavery by including instructions to slaves and masters in his household code and not merely demanding the abolition of the practice altogether. I think that's an important thing to say. And I think it's first of all important to point out that slavery in the first century world differed greatly from the, from the African slave trade that defined slavery in our minds. Slavery in the first century world was not race-based and it was rarely lifelong. 
And while scholars point out that there are numerous examples of slaves in the first century being treated poorly, it was also not uncommon for slaves to be paid the minimum wage of the day and even for slaves to own slaves. It was much more like what we would call indentured servitude than what we think of as slavery. Slaves were doctors and professors and administrators and civil servants. And one scholar points out that no one in ancient times would conceive of an economic or labor structure without it. And no one, not even slaves, thought the whole institution should be abolished, which is why Paul's letter does not aim at abolishing slavery, but rather aims to transform the variegated ancient institution from the inside. The inner transformation of this institution is precisely what Paul does in the five verses that he designates to the topic in Ephesians. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce writes that Paul's letters, even though no one dreamed of getting rid of it, Paul's letters bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And he did this by undermining the authority structure that operated within the slave-master relationship, by reminding masters, as he does in Ephesians 6, 9, that both slave and master are slaves of God and therefore share a common master, God himself. He sets them on equal standing before God, and with God there is no partiality, he writes. Paul's calling for mutual respect between master and slave out of service to their common master. And he's thereby setting up slavery to wilt and die. He's not supporting it. He's removing the ground upon which the institution stood in order to cause it to crumble. I think it's important to say that before we turn to marriage. When it comes to marriage, however, Paul seeks to strengthen the institution, not destroy it. And interestingly, he does this by using Jesus' relationship with the church as his model. He doesn't tell you he's doing this until the end of the section when in 532 he says, oh, and by the way, I've been talking about Jesus and the church this whole time. And in 533 he says, but the way that Jesus loved the church and the way that the church responded to Jesus' love should also be how husbands and wives relate to one another. And it's the manner in which Jesus loved his bride, the church, that really changes things for Paul and influences his instructions for marriage. He spends the majority of his section instructing husbands to love as Jesus did. Because husbands were the people traditionally given priority in the marital relationship. They were the ones with the power, but Jesus shows them how true love looks and how power is supposed to be wielded. Jesus demonstrated his love by giving himself up for the church. Paul says in verse 25, he nourished and cherished her. He was committed to her purity, holiness, and growth. And it's when the husband adopts this manner of love that marriage is transformed to resemble the triune dance of love and joy. Remember, the triune dance is a dance in which each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. The husband, likewise, is to voluntarily circle his wife, pouring love, 
delight and adoration into her. And in this sense, husbands are to be like Jesus to their wives, which sounds offensive because it sounds like the wife is the sinner in need of redemption in that scenario. Husbands get to be Jesus, but wives have to settle for the church. But that's to take the analogy too far. The reason for the analogy is to remind husbands and wives of the love that Jesus had for the church. He gave up everything, all the riches of heaven, in order to have her. He came not to be served, but to serve. He died so that she might live. That's to be the way a man loves his wife. And who wouldn't respond well to that kind of love? What becomes of the objection to submission when the one to whom you are submitting is pursuing your interests over their own? Because Paul does call wives to submit in this passage. But this command is not a statement of the position of wives in relationship to their husbands, as if they submit because that's the action most consistent with their position in the hierarchy of marriage. There are two problems with using Paul's call for wives to submit in support of this kind of hierarchical understanding of marriage. And the first is that the word for submit, kupotasso in the Greek, says nothing about a person's status or position. Hupotasso is used to describe Jesus's act of submission when he washed his disciples' feet. Jesus submitted to the disciples, but that says nothing about his position in relation to them. In fact, the washing of the disciples' feet was so amazing because Jesus is greater than the disciples. The washing of their feet, this act of submission, was an act of love from a greater to a lesser, not a lesser to a greater. And First Peter even says that Jesus submitted, hupotasso, to God, the one who judges justly, when he was reviled and suffered but remained silent. We would never speak of a hierarchy within the Godhead, nor would we ever suggest that Jesus' submission to the Father was the result of holding a lesser position. The word hupotasso alone is therefore not a commentary on the position of wives in relation to their husbands. And the second problem with using Paul's command for wives to submit to support some sort of hierarchy within marriage is that Paul begins this entire section demanding that both husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what he says in 521, which traditionally finds its place in the previous section, but really belongs as the first sentence in this discussion of marriage. Scholars point out that 522, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, is a sentence that actually lacks a verb in the Greek. The verb submit is supplied in English translations in order to make sense of the sentence because wives to your own husbands as to the Lord doesn't make sense without a verb. The question becomes wives do what to your own husbands as to the Lord? So the verb submit is typically supplied in verse 22, but that move separates it from the sentence in verse 21 where the verb for verse 22 is to be found. If you didn't supply the word submit in verse 22, then verses 21 and 22 together would read like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. It reads a bit choppy in English, but it works in the Greek. In that case, what we have here is Paul's household code beginning with a call for both wives and husbands to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's leveling the playing field in Christ, as it were. And the understanding of submission that we come away with is not subservience, but a a mutual giving and love 
that's fueled by joy in response to Christ's giving of himself to us in love. Husbands love wives like Jesus did the church. They give themselves up, they give themselves up for their wives. They enter into the relationship not to be served, but to serve. And wives respond by likewise giving themselves to their husbands in love. They serve their husbands in the same way that Jesus served, hupotasso, the disciples during the Last Supper. And the whole relationship be, between husband and wife therefore becomes cyclical. It becomes a dance of joy and love. That's Paul's vision for marriage in this section. That it would be characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. But what about the fact that in 5.23, Paul calls husbands the head of their wives, just as Jesus is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. By calling husbands the head of their wives, Paul is indeed acknowledging that Husbands traditionally held authority over wives in the world in which he was writing. He's acknowledging the priority and the power they held, the dependence of wives upon their husbands, the reliance they had upon husbands for security and love and the basic provisions of life. But Paul undermines the traditional way this authority was wielded by husbands by immediately reminding husbands that Jesus is the head of the church too, and he used his position to save his bride by giving himself up for her. Jesus is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior, accomplished by dying for her. Just like he does in the case of slaves and masters, Paul does not seek to upend the status quo by external demand, but by inner transformation. He's working within the cultural context that he, he writes. He does not say that husbands are no longer the head because such a declaration would be inconsistent with the realities of his world. They were the head. That was indisputable. They were typically the source of income and security for their wives and family in the Greco-Roman world. Paul merely shouting no wasn't going to change that, but a redefinition of the term head in light of the way Jesus, the head, loved his bride, would bring about the transformation that Paul desired in the way husbands and wives would relate to one another. Paul is not advocating for, for marital roles that couples must conform to regardless of how, how unnatural those roles are to their personalities or season of life. Paul is advocating for marriage to be this dance that reflects the triune God. It's a dance that will look different for each couple and it will flex with the circumstances so that the dance never stops or has to be put on pause. But always for every couple and in every season of life, there is the opportunity to reflect the glory of our triune God, not insisting upon the other orbiting around you, but that you would orbit around the other. In Paul's household, household code, Jesus changes everything. His love changes everything. In every relationship, there's now this race to the bottom in order to lift others up. Because in the kingdom of God, the way down is up. And the way up is now down. Almighty God, whose most dear son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace.
through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.